Well, you guys can be seated. Excited for you all to be here tonight, and I'm excited to be here with you. I love when we sing like that. It sounds like a kind of like an army um, chanting. Um, although some of the men have to learn to maybe raise their voice a little bit more. Um, a little bit afraid of how they sound. And I understand that if you can, um, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Um, you're going to need a Bible. Um, if you're new here or if you're just you know, here for tonight, I'm glad you're here and you're going to meet some guys and you're going to have some fun and eat some wings here shortly. And, um, and uh, we're going to learn a lot. But um, you're going to definitely need the word and probably something to take notes with. And so if you can have a pen or a, a notebook ready or a phone ready um, to jot down some notes, and, um, and, and that way you can learn and you can um, record some things that, sh- that you've learned tonight. And, and just so you know, before, before I read this, I do want to tell you, I've been praying for you um, for a while um, I really have been, and I, and I truly believe that God wants to do a lot in um, your life uh, tonight, your lives tonight, and, uh, and, and so just, if you can, just for these next few hours, really give everything you've got. Lock in, uh, um, push through a- any temptation not to focus, or any temptation to, to doze off, or wish you were watching the game, or, or something of that sort. Um, just push through, and I think God's going to really use tonight um, uh, for a lot of good, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, um, verse 13. I just want to read this to you, and then I want to kind of start down our road. There's going to be three sessions tonight. The first one is called The Need for Men to Lead. The Need for Men to Lead. And then the second one, we'll talk about uh, men who lead in the home. And then the third session tonight, we'll talk about men who lead in the church, okay? So The Need for Men to Lead and then men who lead in the home and men who lead in the church. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 16, um, verse 13, it says this, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in, in love. Let's read it again because it's just easy. It's simple, it's short. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So Paul here gives a set of imperatives, okay? You ready? Paul gives a set of imperatives here. He's giving a set of commands. Uh, Paul is giving here these commands at the conclusion of the letter of 1 Corinthians. And this is a summary, in a sense, of the positive in response to what he's been doing so far in this book, which is kind of giving the negative. He's He's been correcting the church in Corinth in the entire book. The first epistle to the church in Corinth, the first letter, I should say, is a correction letter. The whole letter of 1 Corinthians is corrective. It's a rebuke. It's a loving rebuke, but it's a rebuke. It's a a correction. And so he ends this time here with letting you know, letting the church know what to do in the positive after giving them all the corrections that he gave them in the first 16 chapters, 15 and a half chapters, right? And so in this conclusion, at the end of this whole letter, in this instruction, he closes this by telling them what they're to be as Christians, as members of God's church, as Uh, believers who are faithful um, in response to the wrong things that they were doing and the wrong things that they were believing and then protection from those things happening again. 
And so this is a protection from error. This is a correction. Um, they have to be certain types of people if this stuff is not going to happen again. And so he says at the end of this, again, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, let all that you do be done in love. And so as you look around this, the, the Holy Spirit wrote this. He wrote this through the Apostle Paul. And as I'm reading this and understanding its context, and I'm going to explain just a, a little bit more of that in a few minutes, you have to ask yourself the question, where are these type of men? Like you have to ask yourself that question, where are these type of people? Where do you find people like this? People who are watchful, who stand firm in the faith, who act like men, who are strong, and who let everything that they do be done in love. The question is often asked, where are all the leaders? Where are they? Where's all the men? Where are the people who live like this? We're, we're, like the church in Corinth, there is a need for men to live like this because of the error, because of the failures are, are around the world. And I say this with love, but in large part, men are weak. Men are weak. And they don't know what to stand for. And they're distracted. And they're attracted to the world. And their consciences are scarred by the world. And their consciences are weak. And they're ill-informed. There's the cancel culture that prevents you from being a strong man. Because if you stand for anything, then you'll be in trouble. There's the worldly philosophies. There's the temptation of Netflix and comfort. There's the lure of wealth. My, my kids and I are memorizing 1 John 2.16 right now. And we recited it this morning. And, and it, it talks about all the things of this world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And it says those things aren't from the Father, but they're from the what? the world. And, and those are the temptations. If you see the, the situation right now with Johnny Depp on, on, on TV or on the internet, this is a man who does drugs consistently, who has treated women terribly, and that's the type of person that everyone wants their autograph. Those are the types of people that people stand outside of buildings for and, and yell and scream and wait for them to come out and dig through their dumpsters. My, my uh, brothers and sisters in Chicago, they had their, their graduation ceremony and, and everyone was so excited because such a role model was going to come and speak. You know who the role model was? Rihanna. What qualifies Rihanna to be a role model besides the fact that she's famous? And, and everything goes in this world. We have the wrong heroes. We have trivial goals. We have men who desire to be women, literally, we have 
men who are competing as women and they're applauded for it. We have men having sex with men. We have emojis on your phone right now that you can look at and use of a man who's pregnant. We have transgenderism, LGBTQ. It's terrible. It's terrible. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy families and those who are in the church with weak faith. You think about the family. You have women who, because of the curse, want to lead their husbands. And they're the stronger one in the family. And the Genesis 3 told us that this would happen. Your desire is going to be for your husband. It's for his role that she would lead You see men who are afraid of their wives and who don't lead. They're lazy or they're afraid or they're scared of the threat of not having sex. So they don't step up and lead. You think about the home right now. You have 25 million children in America and one third of them live without their biological father. You have 40% of ages 1 through 12 living without their biological father. You have information coming from the teachers that will determine the course of a child's life. life. And what's happening is grooming. You can groom a child to accept Um, homosexuality, but it would be a crime to groom them under any other circumstances. This is is crazy. You have 50% of children born out of wedlock, 85% 85 of the people in prison come from fatherless homes, 85% of people with behavior disorders had no father in the home. 90% of children who run away and are homeless had no father in the home. People without fathers in the home are 300 times more likely to do drugs and use a weapon. And all of this because of absent, weak men. All of it, who give up their responsibility, who don't take initiative, who aren't willing to do what God requires them to do, who don't fight evil, who don't stand for good. And we have a lie that masculinity is wrong. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe the lie that masculinity is wrong because the world is going to make you feel that way. Because Satan doesn't want men. The man is the protector. The man is, is the one who stands. The man is to be strong. That's, what, that's just part of being a man. God made it that way. And so what, God, what Satan wants you to believe is the real key to manliness is, is for you to, to be passive and to be, and to be weak. Yeah, we're to be weak and depend on the Lord. But I mean a weakness that um, your conscience is just ill-informed by the word of God. It's too sensitive. You don't protect or stand for anything. That's not what God wants. Exodus 25 says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who, who hate me. Whose, whose fault is it 
for the children down the line of generations being in iniquity. Whose fault? Father's. It's the father's fault. If you think about the church, let's move to the church for a minute. The church has women insisting on taking responsibility maybe double the amount of time that men do. If there's a need, a woman is usually stepping up rather than a man. The men come into church, they sit and listen, and they get in the car and they go home. While most of the women are the ones asking what needs to be done and taking the service roles. Most of the phone calls that I get throughout the week as to what can I do, we have any needs, are from women. There's 50 men to every 100 woman, women in the Protestant evangelical church. You have more staff that are women. Women are generally more capable in these types of situations. The men are more passive. That's why generally there's more churches um, hiring women and making them pastors, which is unbiblical. There's a temptation there, I bet, because more women are willing and more women are competent. And so there's women taking initiatives, serving in their giftings, uh, fulfilling needs, aspiring um, to, to help evangelism. Um, the list goes on. You have less men who aspire to meet the qualifications of elders and actually become an elder. When you think about eldership, the, the last thing you want to really do is go out and try to search for men and who can become elders. That's when you're in a, a pretty bad spot. But the qualifications in 1 Timothy speak of one who desires that noble task, who comes and says, I'm not there yet, but I want to be. And that seems to be happening less and less. You have seminaries where presidents, student body presidents are women. You have you have more of the women doing more of, of the work. First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. You can just turn there for a second. First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. You guys know this passage, but this is, is the passage of the qualifications of what? Elders. It says the saying, verse one, that is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be what? Above reproach and the husband of one wife. This is a man. This is a man. The men are called to lead in the church. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. And so uh, the liberal world wants to trick men as to say you shouldn't aspire for leadership, you shouldn't stand firm, you shouldn't be masculine, you should be weak. We see all over the scriptures that men are called to protect against false doctrine for the church. But now the trick is you're being divisive. We see all over the scriptures that men are called to be um, the ones who think about doctrine and direction and decision and protection and example and do the teaching, which is what we're going, going to see a little bit later in our third session. They're the ones who teach. And you have 
less and less men who are competent in doctrine and capable of teaching and are worthy of any type of example of following. There's no fighting for anything. You ever try to stay at home on a weekend and, and say, man, I don't have any work. This is gonna be the best weekend in the world. All the kids, all the family, we're gonna do everything together. But you try to do nothing so that you can relax and you try to be unified at the same time. How does that go? Terrible. I mean, it's just chaotic. You feel less rested than you did to begin with. Why? Because there is no unity in being static. You ever try to unify yourself around not doing anything? You can't do it. You have to have a purpose. You have to be driven to something. You have to have action. You have to have a goal. You have to be fighting against something. The worst place you can be is when you're not fighting for anything. That's terrible. There's so much to fight for. And when you're not fighting for anything, I mean, that's when you'll be depressed and miserable. You got to find a fight. You got to have a goal. We just want to be nice, right? No fights. And uh, we affirm untrue things in order to be unified. That's called being ecumenical where you're unified at the expense of truth. You don't want to be that. And so it's truly backwards. Ephesians 6 talks about being in a war. Being in a war. And we certainly don't live like we're in a war. The only way to change this is to have men. Men. Men who have holy character who are leaders, who are responsive towards evil, who uphold what's good, who are Christ-like, who have holiness, and they're not concerned with the, the acceptance or the style or the method or the technique. They're selfless. They take initiative. They demonstrate confidence. They're not passive. They don't give up when things get hard. I mean, we live in a culture that what you feel is true. Just because I feel it, it's right. No, just because you feel something doesn't make it right. Just because you feel like something is hard and you should give up doesn't mean that you should give up. Everything that you want, to quote Monty Williams, the head coach of the Phoenix Suns, everything you want is on the other side of hard. That's part of the curse, thorns and thistles. Everything's gonna come by the sweat of your brow. Everything. You can't give up. You can't be passive. There's so many men who have to walk, you know, you too. I mean, everybody, we have to walk around eggshells around them. Like we're walking on eggshells so we don't hurt their feelings. Because if you hurt their feelings, they might just give up and might just, Walk away from the Lord. Really? How about men who are firm on conviction because it's what the Bible says and just do what they're told to do by the Lord. Don't get their feelings in the way. That'll get you in trouble. I have a son like that. I love him to death. But when I tell him to do something, his feelings get in the way. And I said, buddy, that's gonna hurt you over time if you let that continue. As a police officer is going to tell you to pull over and your feelings are going to get in the way. You got to just do what the Lord says because he says it. He's the Lord. We need men who live like this, who just, because it's hard, they don't give up because what else would they do? They need to follow what the Lord says. They're motivated by something else. They're motivated internally by the word of God. And so to just pick this apart for just a second, there's five aspects that Paul calls these people to 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I've already laid them out for you, and I'm just going to name those five as these points that tell us how to live in such a way that is protective against error, that lives in such a way that moves forward with a right perspective and leads out and is manly and strong. Those who do this are leaders because they're doing what the Lord says. I'm not original here. There's five points. Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, do it all in love. Those are the five commands of this verse, all in verse 13. They're just five. It doesn't take a lot for you to understand that literally they are five commands just in a row. So five imperatives. So you don't have to understand how are they flowing from the next. He's just saying five things. And all of this, remember, fits in the context of this book. What he's been saying this whole time, this is a correction, this is a rebuke, but this is also a moving forward. This is a looking ahead. In chapters one through 14, he corrects wrong behavior. In chapter 15, he corrects wrong theology. And so they were acting like pagans. They were, um, they were, there was sexual immorality. They were abusing spiritual gifts. They were, um, they were being unloving. I mean, you can go through the book and just see it. I mean, it's not very hard to see. They, they were taking the Lord's Supper inappropriately and irreverently. Um, I mean, this is what the whole book is about, Right? And so you just see the, the correction that's taking place the whole time. Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, just turn there briefly for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 11, Paul is writing his second letter to the church in Corinth. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 5 through 11. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by, by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. For even if I had made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. He's talking about, what letter is he talking about? His first letter. He made him grieve, but he said, even if I did, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into what? repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death when you're just kind of sad about the consequences and you're just upset about, you know, things are hard, etc. but you still continue on in your sin. It's going to kill you anyway. It doesn't account for you feeling bad. Your sin. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, right? To prove yourself innocent. And so you see all this. This is what Paul has done in this epistle. He has, he has spoken of factions, worldly wisdom, pagan habits, sexual immorality, defrauding each other financially, wrong views of marriage, wrong views of divorce, wrong views of singleness. Uh, I mean, misuse of spiritual gifts, being unloving, immature faith, the whole, the whole uh, um, letter. And now here's how to continue. And we're just gonna mention them, but this is the spirit-filled man. The spirit-filled man. He looks like this. The first is be watchful. Be watchful. The 
The first is be watchful. Verse 13. He says, be watchful. That means to be alert, literally. Here's what Paul is calling this church to be, these men to be. Be alert. Be alert. Be awake. In 1 Thessalonians 5, this word is used in terms of being alive, literally, versus being actually dead. So this word is used for being alive, being awake, being alert. It's, it's the idea of, it's 22 times this word is used in the New Testament, and it's always used with that connotation versus being uh, apathetic. But there's more to this. Here's what this is implying. You have to understand what is going on. You have to understand what is going on. You got to know what's going on. You have to know reality. When you look around the landscape of the church, when you look around the landscape of America, when you look around the landscape of the community, you have to be one who knows how to identify biblically what is going on. You can't be someone who just makes a comment about something, not really sure if that's true or accurate or inaccurate. It's just your opinion and you want to keep everything positive in your life. You don't really want to be the, the grumpy one, right? So you just say things that are not true and just positive. Don't worry about it. Everything will work out at some point. You can't be that type of person. You have to identify what's going on from the beginning. You gotta be someone who's trained to identify before everyone else identifies what is actually happening in this situation. What's going on in this scenario? What's happening there, here, biblically, it's the commander of the army. It's the one who's in charge of the troops. It's not biting on everything that passes by. You can't be oblivious. You can't just be winsome. You can't just get and be indifferent and, and just have what you want and pretend like nothing's going on and it's all okay. You have to be anticipatory. You have to watch. You have to know what's going on. You have to be so educated in the scriptures that you can make a diagnosis and you gotta stand on it. You have to be square with the word. You have to be honest. You've got to be able to make a right assessment You've got to not be able to fall into stupor and obliviousness about, about what's going on around you. You got to care. You have to know. You have to be able to explain it to the people around you and prepare them. You have to know the state of the world, the state of the church, the state of the heart, the state of, uh, of, of uh, what's going on in, in the larger evangelical world. You got to know the state of theological doctrinal error. You got to be able to identify these things and have clarity about them. You, people with no alertness, they don't protect anybody. You have to know this. You have to know what's going on. You can't accept things just because the world accepts it. You have to have alertness. Here's what you have to have alertness against. I'm just gonna say these quickly for time's sake. There's five of them and they all start with S. Number one, and I'm just, I'm using these, this word, this phrase, this, 
that's used throughout the scripture? And where do we find this idea of being alert? Well, it, it's generally within the context of five things. The first is sin. Be alert against sin. Mark 14, 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You have to be, you have to be holy. This really has been lost. And I know a preacher said this recently, but I mean, we've said this for a long time here. The goal of the Christian life is for you to be holy. It's not for you to be successful and great in the eyes of the world. I mean, the goal is all wrong. When you become a Christian, your life goal is to become Christ-like. You were saved to become holy and mature through the word. That's what honors God. God wants a pure, holy church, a bride presented to himself. Don't worry about being cool or being successful. Worry about being holy. That's the goal. That's the goal. Because you know what? Sin is what will ruin your life. Sin will ruin your life. You need to take sin seriously or sin will take you surprisingly. I mean it. You need to take sin seriously or sin will take you surprisingly. You won't know when it's coming, but it will be your downfall. I can't tell you how many times over the years, men with such potential have been ruined by sin in a place where there's no coming back. Family's gone, etc. The other place that you have to be alert, uh, the other places that we see this word and this phrase used, this term used, it speaks in the context of being alert against Satan. So you have sin, you have Satan. So the first idea here is to be watchful. Be watchful against what? Scripture points to first, being watchful against sin. Second, about Satan. First Peter 5, 8 through 9 says, be sober-minded, be what? Watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. You have an enemy. You have an enemy. Don't think you're not in a fight. You are. You have an enemy. And he wants to kill you. He's like a lion. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to distract you. He wants to bring about doubt. And he wants to bring about death. He wants to prove your faith to not be real. Do you know how many false converts there are in the scriptures? I mean, it's a major theme of the Bible, false conversion. You gotta fight to prove that faith to be real. If you make it to the end, you will be saved. You gotta cling on to Christ as proof. We're not saved by our works, but our works are the, are the proof of our genuine saving faith. Number three is that you have to be watchful against secretive false teaching. This is, these are the contexts in which this phrase is used. Sin, Satan, secret, slash false teaching. Second Peter 2, 1, but false prophets also arose among you, people just as will be uh, among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will what? secretly bring in destructive heresies. When I say secretive, they're not just going to come out and say, I'm a false teacher. Hey, everybody, right? 
You have to be able to identify this. You have to be able to be alert. Listen now, doctrine is important. I know we talk about it a lot around here. It's important. There's men who are genuine Christians who have no idea what they believe or how to explain it because they're just used to hearing teaching of Christian living that's all discombobulated and disconnected. You'll never know how to fight false doctrine if you don't know true biblical doctrine. You don't need to live confused your whole life. 2 Timothy chapter four, just turn there. I think we have about five or, I'm gonna push it, maybe 10 minutes left. And we're gonna finish it. But let me just point this out. 2 Timothy chapter four. 2 Timothy chapter four, verses three through five. For the time is coming when people will not endure, what? Sound teaching or sound doctrine. Doctrine is just teaching, other translations. And they will have itching ears and they're gonna accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You know what that means? It means they were in the church for a while and they couldn't endure anymore. Same old teaching about things that are so important and so serious all the time. Life, death, Bible teaching. We just don't have anything more exciting than this. And they begin to go find something that's more exciting. And I just wait. Who are, who are going to be the ones who just, it's just, I want to, they can't take it anymore. They, they don't want to persevere through sound teaching. Make it your goal to be doing the same thing in 30 years. Like just be that kind of man who's just so consistent. It's like people can look 30 years down the road and they're like, they're just literally doing the same things they were doing before. <laughs> Those are the type of men who are, going to be protected from the enemy. They don't need to be great. They just need to keep doing the same thing. Okay, let me just point out these other two. Spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness. Be watchful so that you're not spiritually dead. The very word points to this, right? That you would be a watchful, alert, alive, this is a protection against being spiritually dead, right? And this, this, I can say it this way. This, the second that you stop caring is the second that you should start worrying. When all your spiritual pursuits become just tiresome, start worrying. Revelation 3, turn with me. Revelation 3. Verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, that is, permanently. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is the idea here. You got to be awake. Lastly, let me say this. We got to get through these other ones. Number five, be alert for the second coming. That's what the Bible points us to. Sin, Satan, secret false teaching, spiritual deadness, and the second coming of Christ. Second Peter speaks about this. Let's just turn there real quick. 
Second Peter speaks about this. The other four points are pretty simple but important. So give me 10 more minutes here. Five, five more minutes, 10 more minutes. Okay. Second Peter chapter three, verses 10 through 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief And then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since, watch this now, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, it's coming, listen now, since this is going to happen and it's gonna come at an unexpected time when you don't know, it could come in 30 minutes, it could come tomorrow, It could come now. He asked this question, verse 11, halfway through. What sort of people ought you to be? What kind of people are you to be if that's the case? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You gotta be waiting. You gotta be watchful because Christ is gonna be coming back. You gotta be ready. You gotta be alert. Can I tell you something? If you're like this, you are gonna face opposition. It's gonna be hard. People will say bad things about you. You have to be ready for that. If the goal of your life is to avoid being talked poorly about, then you will not be alert. You'll just give in. You'll go to sleep and turn off the porch light because it's too much trouble to go outside. But can I tell you this? Listen, thieves, they don't like guard dogs. Right? They don't like guard dogs. They don't like watchtowers. They don't like manly men who stand outside and wait. They don't like that. So they're not gonna like you. But you gotta stand for the Lord. You gotta stand for the Lord. You can't let your guard down. You can't let the thief in. You can't accept deception. Number two. Stand firm. You got to stand firm. Verse 13. It says, there's more to this. Notice it says, stand firm what? As we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Stand firm what? In the faith. What that means is the content of the faith. It doesn't mean just like stand firm in in doing things you're not sure that are going to work out. Stand firm in the faith. What's the faith? The Christian faith. Stand firm in the content of the faith. How are you going to not let all of this stuff in verses one, in chapters one through 15 happen, church in Corinth? Now that I've corrected you, stand firm in this teaching, in the faith, in, in doctrine. This is doctrine. This is truth. Jude 3 speaks about this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to what? Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's the content of the body of work of the faith. It's the Christian doctrine that's been given over and completed. We don't need anything more for life and godliness. Contend for this. Contend for this. That's what you're being called to do. Contend for that. You got to know what's going on and then you got to contend for the truth. That's what he says. 1 Corinthians 15.1, if you just turn a page over. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received and which you now, what? Stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word preached to you. 
It's standing firm in this. It's doctrine. It's it's not distorting the teaching of Scripture. It's not accepting half-truths. It's not accepting alterations of doctrines. This has been influenced by pagans and by the world. Do you know this? If you move over to 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 2. To stay in the same book, move into chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross is what? Folly to those who are perishing, but not to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. This is going to be folly. This is going to be distorted. This is going to be, um, uh, you know, people are going to deny it. There's going to be wrong interpretation. You cannot budge. And don't get tired of not budging. There's going to be pagan influence. Second Thessalonians chapter two. So then brothers stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Colossians four, two says that you should stand fully assured. You got to be who God wants you to be. The first thing you got to do is you got to understand what's going on. The second thing you got to do is you got to stand firm and not budge on doctrine. The third thing you got to do, almost done here, is act like men. Act like what? Men. You think it's bad to be a man or to act like a man? What does the Bible say? Act like what? Okay, that just solved it. Right? It just solved it. What's a man? What's a man like? I mean, well, let's just think about it from the beginning. And we're going to go back to the beginning in our second talk. It's, it's the leader. Act like a man. What's a man like? He's a leader. He's mature. He, he's trustworthy. He takes initiative. God created him to be in charge. To... to to have courage, devotion, discipline, protection, control, not childish, sincere, walking with the Lord, having dominion. This is, this is not an opinion. That's just what it is. This is what defines the male. It's the leader. Of course, male and female were both created in the image of God, but the distinctness of the roles, what does it mean to be a man? It means to be the what? The leader. That's what he's saying here. That's what it is. It's, it's maturity. It's to lead out in the home and in the church. It's to not be childish. It's to not give up your responsibility. I see so many people who start poorly and they end things poorly. There's just no integrity. There's no leadership. There's no pride in the responsibility. There's no sense of obligation or obedience to the Lord to be a man. 1st Just turn with me for a couple of these. 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be what? Children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just turn over a few, a few pages left. Verses 1 through 2. But brothers... I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as what? Infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you're still in the flesh. Don't be that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, one page to your right, verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, 
with a love in a spirit of, or with love in the spirit of gentleness? Do you need discipline to grow up? That's the question Paul's asking. You should be a man who's equipped, like 2 Timothy talks about, by the word of God, equipped for every good work. The man of God who's equipped for every good work through the word of God. 2 Peter talks about the word being something that we grow up by, right? This is a father that you wanna be, not a child. You wanna have spiritual children who you're raising. You wanna do the work. That's what the man does, he works. And I'm not making that up, it's just by biblical definition. Not afraid of work. He's the one who fights. I mean, that's just what the scripture says. Not a physical fight for us now in Christ, but the fight of what? Of faith, right? Let me finish these last two out. Number four, be strong. He says, be strong, be strong. First Corinthians chapter 16, we're back there. Verse 13, be what? Strong. Men are supposed to be what? Strong. You're supposed to be strong. That's how you're made. That's how you're made. You're made to be the strong one. You're made to be the one where people come in and find safety underneath your protection. Your family, the people in your leadership, under your leadership, the people within the church. We're a young church, but what, what's happening is that people who want healthy, stable, protected from the enemy, Christianity, are coming here to be underneath the wings and the leadership of this church because they're willing to entrust themselves and their families under its leadership because it's strong in standing under the word of God and for the Lord and faithful to the scriptures. You want people to come and flock to your leadership? Be strong, don't be weak. You want people running under you because you provide protection, they trust you and you give spiritual safety. They're willing to put their whole lives under your care. How do you have strength? Is this just like work out and get big biceps? No, this is an inner strength. You're not afraid. It's okay to have big biceps. Arnold, Ephesians 6, you're strong in the strength of what? His might. This is Ephesians 3, the inner man. You fight for your kids, for the doctrine, for the truth, for the church. You fight in prayer. You know what you're up against. You're willing to stand. You persevere. You don't give up. That's a man who's strong. Lastly, do it all in love. Do it all in love. Lastly, let all that you do be done in what? Love. This is the most comprehensive. It says all that you do. And let me just say this because we don't have a lot of time. Just boil this down to the two greatest commandments. All that you do is because you love who? God and others. But don't get in the trap that what love is is enabling or indifferent. You see that the Jesus to the rich, is it the rich young ruler? He looked at him and what does it say? He did what? He loved him. And so he said, go sell all your stuff and follow me. And he rejected it. And Jesus never saw him again. What did Jesus do because he loved him? Called him to do what? Repent for his own eternal good. 
So listen, let me say this. This will keep you above reproach. Let me just finish with this. This will keep you above reproach. When you're doing all the first four things, this is what's gonna keep you above reproach and balance you out and make sure you're doing it for the right reasons because you love your church, you love your family, you love the Lord, you wanna be the most loving person on the planet. Peter talks about how those who revile your good behavior will just be put to shame. And this is so you don't get hard and callous. It helps keep you soft and gentle. It keeps your motivation to be right. Right? You wanna be strong and loving. Men, I would love to be a group of men and church leaders here in this community who look like this, who look like this. They're alert. They stand firm in doctrine. They're men. They lead. They're strong. And they do everything in love. Listen now, don't take your eyes off of these things. This is what you're called to be. In the next two sessions, which are simple overflows of this. We'll talk about the two realms, the family and, and the church. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just ask you for you to make us the men that you've called us to be. Where are all the leaders? Where are all the men? Where are all the biblical men? not the ones in which the world has tricked, has redefined manhood. Let us be the men that you have created us to be, called us to be, designed us to be, and let it cause families to be protected, children to know the Lord, churches to change the world, to eradicate error and evil, and stand for good. Let us be those men. In Jesus' name, amen.